This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy. Episode 17, COVID-19, have we made any progress to conquer the pandemic or are the results mixed at best? We begin week six of San Francisco and California's lockdown tomorrow, Tuesday. This is a time to take stock and to look at what we have accomplished and what more is to be done. How have we spent the last five weeks? Have we used that time wisely as an investment to defeat COVID-19? Let's begin with the numbers as of Monday, April 20th. On a global basis, we now have a total of 2,478,361 infections, 170,306 fatalities, and 645,687 patients have recovered. For the United States, we have 791,625 infections, 42,458 fatalities, and 71,895 patients have recovered. For California, we have 28,963 infections, we have 1,072 fatalities, and for San Francisco, we have 1,216 infections and 20 fatalities. So that is our total number on a global, national, statewide, and local basis. Now, I want to remind you that when the lockdown went into effect here in San Francisco on Tuesday, March 16th, global infections were approximately 800,000. Today, they stand at 2,478,361. That is hardly progress. We have made progress, however, by slowing the rate of infection, by slowing the rate of fatalities. We have seen that uh, most impressively in New York, where the curve of increased infection rates and increased fatalities has flattened. We've also seen that here in California, and we've seen it uh, throughout Europe. So that's the good news. The rate of increased infections, the rate of fatalities is slowing down. However, we are a long way from defeating COVID-19 with infection rates and fatalities as high as they still are. To give you some sense of comparison, the seasonal flu annually kills between 290,000 to 650,000 people globally. Thus far, COVID-19 is responsible for 170,306 fatalities and counting. As I said, we have some work to do. Let us begin with some additional numbers. We've spent a lot of time talking about the transmission rate of COVID-19, how contagious it is, etc. I want to share one statistic with you, which illustrates very starkly, but very uh, accurately, how contagious this illness is. 
the contagion rate is summed up in a number called the RO number. That's capital R, lowercase o. The RO number is equal to the average number of people an infected patient can infect. In the case, the RO number for the common flu, for instance, is 1.3 people. In other words, if I had a case of the flu, the RO number for that common case of flu is 1.3. I could infect up to 1.3 other people. That's the standard RO rate for the common flu. For SARS, the RO rate was 2.0. Again, SARS was a very high rate of infection. Now, let's just come back to COVID-19. The statistics I'm about to give you, um, I have to stipulate to the fact that they're coming from China. They're also coming from the World Health Organization. Unfortunately, neither China nor the World Health Organization uh, has acquitted themselves honorably or capably or accurately in providing any reliable statistics with regard to COVID-19. That said, all we have to go on are the numbers which the WHO and which China has given us. So let me share the RO numbers for Wuhan, which come out of China. According to the World Health Organization, the RO rate for COVID-19 in Wuhan is between 1.4 to 2.5. You can see that even with even those numbers are exceptionally high as compared to the RO for common flu, which is 1.3. And the, the, the WHO admits that COVID-19 in Wuhan is between 1.4 and 2.5. So up to double the infectious rate of the common flu. Other studies have said that the RO rate for Wuhan is between 2.24 and 3.58. In other words, one ill COVID-19 patient in Wuhan could infect up to almost four other individuals. Again, when we talk about the contagion rate being exponential, the, transmiss the transmissibility being exponential, you can see it in those numbers. One patient can infect up to 3.58 other patients. That is a very shocking and a very alarming number. And for those reasons, we have been on lockdown and we have been social, practicing social distancing for the last five weeks. But again, my question is, how have we used that five-week um, hiatus? How effective have we been in using that time? We have bought time effectively. Um, the containment that we've practiced for the last five weeks, staying at home, closing all but essential services, social distancing, wearing masks, wearing gloves, um, it, that, that's become a way of life. And, um, and again, we have seen some positive results in, the, in that the rate of increase of new infections and fatalities has flattened, but it hasn't, but we have not conquered it. Now, the next phase going forward is going to be a focus on therapeutics and a focus on the vaccine. Let's take a look at therapeutics. In earlier podcasts, 
We've talked about the important role that therapeutics will play in treating COVID patients, number one. There are 50 to 100 existing antiviral medicines which are being studied by the FDA with a view to repurposing them. Chloroquine, which is an anti-malarial viral medicine, and it's been in use since 1949, um, has been very effective in, in the treatment of uh, malaria. Um, it has shown some promise in early trials against COVID-19, uh, but not without political controversy. The other phase of therapeutics will be testing. Um, our rates of testing here in the United States have been uh, lacking. We need to, more needs to be done in the area of testing, both the traditional nasal swab as well as the antibody testing, and also the importance of tracing. Once you determine that someone is infected with COVID-19, we need to trace all of those contacts that that person, that that patient has had and warn those contacts that they need to go into isolation because they may be carrying the, the virus themselves. So the therapeutic phase is the next phase. It's a phase which is going on in uh, parallel with the social distancing phase, but that is uh, the therapeutic phase, the testing phase, the tracing phase will be with us for some time and will have the effect of uh, controlling the infection, diminishing the effects of the uh, infection, and hopefully shortening the period of, uh, of illness the COVID-19 patients suffer. Um, vaccines, it looks as though the vaccine is perhaps 18 months away. And even at such time as we do have a vaccine, and there have been some very promising reports of new vaccines coming out of the United States, France, Israel, to mention several uh, source countries for vaccines. Once we actually come up with a vaccine, that vaccine is going to have to go through uh, testing through the FDA, albeit on an expedited basis, but um, that testing is not fast and we don't want it to be fast, but we do need it to be expedited. And once we have settled on a vaccine as being the appropriate one to, uh, to administer on a mass basis, gearing up production of that vaccine on a global basis for 340 million people in the United States, 500 million people in Europe, 1.1 billion people in India, 1 billion people in China, 1.5 billion people in Africa, 500 million people in South America. You know, as I throw these population numbers out there to provide sufficient vaccine, to build the factories, which in turn are going to be able to produce billions of dosages of this vaccine is a very tall order and will test the logistical capability of the pharmaceutical industry to no end. So again, uh, those areas of therapeutics, the vaccine testing and tracing, which we've discussed in previous podcasts, we've made some progress in the last five to six weeks, but um, but again, the that will be 
ongoing, uh, that, that will be an ongoing project. Let us move on to trying to put COVID-19 into perspective. Throughout history, as humans have spread across the world, uh, infectious diseases have been a constant companion as human beings have spread across the world. Even in this modern era, outbreaks are almost constant. Here are some of history's most deadly pandemics and their numbers, their fatality rates as compared to COVID-19. The plague of all times, of course, was the Black Death or the bubonic plague, which lasted in Europe from 1347 to 1351 and claimed approximately 200 million lives. That was more than half the population of Europe perished from the Black Death or bubonic plague during that four-year period in the mid-14th century. Additionally, smallpox took 56 million people in Europe in 1520, in the early part of the uh, 16th century. Throughout the 17th and 18th century, uh, countries suffered uh, great plagues and they claimed another three million some lives. Cholera, yellow fever, and the third plague claimed over 13 million lives in the 19th century. The Spanish flu killed up to 50 million people between 1918 and 1919 globally. In fact, the advent of the Spanish flu in 1918 actually hastened the end of, of World War I because during September, October, and November of 1918, soldiers, Allied soldiers, German soldiers were contracting the Spanish flu at a very high rate, were dying at a very high rate, given the very poor battlefield conditions that existed in World War I. And as a result, both sides saw that they were, they were just not going to have the manpower to continue on with the war. And the, so the Spanish flu actually hastened the end to World War I. Throughout the 1950s and 1960s, the Asian flu and the Hong Kong flu claimed about 2.1 million lives. And of course, in the early 1980s, HIV AIDS claimed between 25 and 35 million people and continues to ravage lives throughout the world to this day. While a cure for HIV AIDS has not been found, there have been great advances in the therapeutics field, pharmaceutical field, so that the therapeutics can help to manage the HIV infection so that patients can live a relatively normal life. And into the new millennium, uh, we've had a number of pandemics, starting with SARS, the swine flu, MERS, Ebola. Together, those four or five pandemics have claimed approximately two million lives. And up to this point, COVID-19 has claimed 170,306 lives, but that is ongoing. Uh, no one by any means is uh, suggesting that 170,306 fatalities to COVID-19 will be the end of it. So that is where COVID-19 at this point in time stands in relation to 
fatalities, contagion rates with historic pandemics. Wanted to bring that to your attention. I think the historic perspective and looking at COVID-19 in the context of other pandemics should give us some perspective, perhaps some comfort that the that the world has suffered these pandemics before and has come out on the other side stronger than they were when they went into it. The Black Plague wiped out 50% of Europe's population. No one is suggesting for a moment that COVID-19 is anywhere close to that level of virulence. Uh, smallpox, for instance, killed over 90% of Native Americans. Again, no one is suggesting that COVID-19 is a virulent virus on a par with what smallpox did to Native Americans. In Europe throughout the 1800s, 400,000 people a year died of smallpox. And then of course, we have the HIV pandemic of 25 to 35 million people who died in the early 1980s and continued to die as a result of HIV and AIDS infection. We must draw some comfort from the fact that science, public sanitation, personal hygiene, vaccinations, changing diets, food safety science, all together and or singly have defeated plagues in the past and will also defeat this particular plague of COVID-19. Social distancing at this point, I think people are losing patience with it. We're beginning to see it fray around the edges as here in the United States, there are protests against social distancing, which I, uh, which I do not agree with, but people are eager to get back to work. I would urge our political leaders to take a leaf out of the book of President Macron and what France has done. He very wisely last week set a target date of May 11th, that is three and a half weeks from now. May 11th is the target date to begin the gradual getting back to normal in France. On May 11th, schools, nurseries, and universities will open. And after May 11th, progressively, cautiously, carefully, the rest of French society and the economy will gradually open. That was a very wise move on the part of the French president. I would urge our political leaders to do something similar because the moment we actually have a date certain to work towards, I think that will take a lot of the pressure off people wanting to abandon social distancing entirely, which is the wrong thing to do. At least if people have a date certain that it will be, will transition back to normal on a date certain, they might be more willing to accept and implement social distancing for a few weeks longer. So yes, we have made some progress in the last five weeks, but the progress has been a bit of a mixed bag. Um, we have flattened curves. We have slowed down rates of infection and fatality rates, which is good, but 
I'm afraid it's not enough. Testing here in the United States remains low. Um, therapeutics are still in question. We're still looking at 50 to 100 therapeutics that may or may not uh, be able to be repurposed. I, I want to see more progress there. And then, of course, the vaccination is still 18 months off. My sources for today's podcast have been the Visual Capitalist, Worldometer, and the Los Angeles Times. And before I leave you, I just want to bring to your attention that here in San Francisco, Saturday, April 25th at 12 noon, all of San Francisco is invited to join Tony Bennett in singing I Left My Heart in San Francisco as a thank you to our COVID-19 frontliners. So wherever you are, stop your car, open your front door, step out on your balcony, and let us hear you belt out, I left my heart in San Francisco. Thank you for listening to the San Francisco Experience. This is your host, Jim Herlihy, signing off from America's favorite city, San Francisco.